at Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning in to our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to His followers in the book of John, we'll learn how to follow in the steps of Christ as He marks out the way of discipleship for us. I'd like to invite everyone to turn with me to the passage we just read, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. And as we're turning, I want to be cognizant of what's happening in our world today. Today is 9-11, which we as a country and a global community remember the uh, devastating attack on our soil. Now, having just moved from the Jersey Shore, I know a lot of people who are personal friends who lost loved ones and friends in that attack. And I know many first responders who were on the ground right after uh, the towers fell. And uh, many of them are dealing with severe health issues. Um, So we want to pray for peace in our country and pray for people who are still um, facing physical suffering from their work to bring bring saving uh, presence to the people who are stuck in the rubble. But also... Um, the country of Great Britain is experiencing a great sadness right now as their leader, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, has died. And now their new king, Prince Charles, has taken his vows and is the king. So we want to pray for him that he rules charitably and rules in a way that reflects the character and kindness of God, which we'll see in this passage today. So let's take a quick moment. And uh, for me, this is uh, the second time I've preached the service as well as led, so my energy banks are feeling kind of low. So I'll be praying that God gives me uh, the strength to pray, uh, deliver his word with uh, accuracy and, and gladness. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have given us all sorts of good gifts. And I pray for our, like our country where you have placed us. And I ask, Lord, that you would be glorified in our midst. And would you bring peace to our country and healing to the bodies and souls of people who are suffering from the physical effects of the terrorist attack on 9-11, but also the psychological effects as well. Father, many people lost their lives, but many people in our country lost hope when that happened. And so, Lord, as we are bastions of hope in a hopeless world, help us to bring good and to do good by others, to bring peace and to live forth the peace that you have given us. Father, I also lift up uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are in Great Britain, and I ask that you would uh, give them wisdom on how to be a steady, steady hand in a, in a tremulous time. Anytime there's a leadership tra- transition, uh, it is a catastrophic thing. But in this case, uh, to have lost a beloved queen, I ask, Lord, that you would Bring healing and rest to that community and give uh, King Charles the wisdom to serve his people like you, the God of the universe, serve. And so for our part, Lord, now we ask that you would help us to be people who listen to your word. Make our eyes see and our ears hear what you are saying to us in this passage. And we thank you that you love us enough to have given us a word. So now, Lord, make it make sense to us. And help us to know clearly how to apply these things to our lives because your spirit's already at work in our lives. We ask for this in your name. Amen. 
I'd like to introduce you to uh, someone who has recently come onto my, uh, my, my radar. This, is a, this man's name is Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He was a Lutheran priest who was a massive impact to the missionary movement of Christ across the world. Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf created a gospel mission that is now called the Moravian Gospel Mission. And um, one thing about him that is unique and fascinating is that Zinzendorf and his followers focused on reaching people that no one else was willing to reach. They specifically sought out the most difficult environment to reach into. At the core of their missionary endeavor was this belief that as Christ has carried on himself the sufferings of the earth, so we as missionaries carry upon ourselves people's physical and spiritual bondage too so that they might see the grace of Christ. And thousands of these missionaries went all over the world to the most destitute and difficult places to do as Zissendorf vowed everything in their power for the heathen, especially those for whom no one cared. So they would seek out areas that were filled with intense suffering, brutal climates. Some of them even sold themselves into slavery to reach groups of slaves at the time. And this incredible example of missionaries across the world uh, forms, as I was reading about him, it caused me to stop and ask, like, how does God, how, do, how should I follow Christ in this world? What does it mean for me, Nathan Didlake, and for you who are here to follow Christ in this world? We need to understand that this is not a question that Jesus has just thrown out there. He didn't just say, follow me, and then not tell us what to do. He's made it very clear in his word what following him should look like. Jesus gave us a clear example, and he paved the way for us to follow in his footsteps. When people ask, what is God's will? They're typically asking that in relation to some like major cosmic question, like, should I take this job? Should I move here? Should I marry this person? But even in those larger questions, we as Christians have the responsibility to ask, God, on the basis of my relationship with you, following you, what should I do? How can I, as a follower of yours, um, bring the most love and light to people as I make these decisions? How can I, based upon the fact that I follow you, make a wise choice so I can fully fulfill your commands? Now, our passage today, John 13, is nestled in what's called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus and his disciples are sitting at the Passover Seder. And the Passover Seder was an annual celebration of the Jews to celebrate how God had saved them out of Egypt. If you've ever watched The Prince of Egypt, this is what they're celebrating. The Passover Seder is, is very long, and it's filled with all sorts of symbolism. And each one of those symbols, and each one of those different aspects of the meal, is meant to rehearse, physically rehearse, how God saved ch the children of Israel out of the bondage of slavery and into his great salvation, calling people to himself. So Jesus and his disciples are sitting there at this Passover Seder, and reenacting the salvation of Israel. And it's during this meal, the meal that, we're, um, that we, we meet them at, that Jesus gives his disciples the instructions about communion. He takes all of the elements of the Passover Seder, but especially, too, the, the cup and the bread, and he says, this is no longer about the salvation that came to the Israelites. This is now about 
me and the salvation I would give, which probably freaked everybody out because that was the, would be akin to blasphemy. It'd be like taking the Declaration of Independence and saying, it's not actually writing about a country, it's writing about the country that I'm forming. No one would understand that. No one would believe you. And it's in this very Passover that Jesus gives us communion. And it's also in this Passover celebration that Jesus explains that he is going away, that his disciples cannot physically follow him, but while he's away, they must continue following him with their actions. And it is here that Jesus shows fully what his love looks like. So essentially, our passage is broken into two different halves. The first half is where Jesus displays uttermost love for his disciples. The second half is where Jesus explains his actions and their implications for his disciples' lives. So with your Bible or your tablet, whatever you have, let's look at chapter, um, chapter 13, verses 1 through 11. So let's start at verse 1. Jesus tells, uh, John tells us about how Jesus, in his actions that we read, read here, loved his disciples to the full. In verse 1, we read this. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What we're about to see is the most effusive expression of Jesus' love for his disciples, where he takes off his outer garment and washes their feet. Now, a little bit about foot washing. First, it's disgusting. It's absolutely gross. Second, it was only for homes that were rich and elite. You couldn't expect to go, if you, went, if you were invited or fancy enough to be invited to the rich, the powerful, the elite's home, that they would have a common servant doing it, which is the third thing you need to know about, the, about foot washing. Only the lowest servant in the house did it. You never saw it get done by the elite and the powerful. But here's Jesus. He's standing around. They're walking through the Passover Seder. He's saying some things that are fantastic and confusing. And all of a sudden, he takes the basin that was only to be used and touched by the lowest servant, and he goes around and he washes his disciples' feet. But of course, Peter, being Peter, argues with them. And I'm so grateful at this point that all of the arguments I have with God are not in the Bible, because I've had plenty. Poor Peter and the rest of the disciples, they didn't get it, and it, was, it is it's written in perpetuity in the scriptures for us to be to marvel with them. But he looks at Jesus and says, Ah, this is beneath you. What are you doing? And if we consider Peter's point of view, he was right. Peter would have been mortified, especially if he had known that Jesus was about to wash the feet of a person who would betray him to his death. From Peter's point of view, he sees Jesus as the ruling Messiah, which from that perspective, and based upon the cultural history that we've come to know uh, in the generation since, they thought Jesus was going to lead an army, amass an army, and knock out the Romans, and thus reestablish Jerusalem and Israel as its own unique identity. That's what they thought this man, that Jesus was going to do, that his work as the Savior would be to take a throne with the sword by no means is this guy washing feet. By no means does the son of David take the basin and put himself that low. Kings don't wash feet. That, everyone knows this. Everyone knows the guy who's the CEO doesn't walk in and wash the feet of the people who are working beneath him. So Peter argues with him. 
In verse 8, we read this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. It's an ultimatum that probably scared Peter. Peter, if I don't wash you, you are an outsider to me and to my cause. Which is an interesting response from Jesus because it tells us a lot about what Jesus thought about what his actual role is as the Messiah King. Jesus saw that his greatest work, the most loving expression of his Messiahship, was to offer cleansing to all who would receive him. What it means to be on Team Jesus? People have given all sorts of answers what it means to be on Team Jesus. Some have attached it to a political affiliation. Some people have attached it to a a, a cause to be joined. Some people have attached it to a friendship. Whatever it is, it starts and is maintained by the the, the cleansing love of God. So Jesus looks at Peter and says, if I haven't cleansed you, then you haven't received my actual ministry. And if you're not cleansed, then you are not actually a part of what I'm doing. Jesus was bringing his ministry to a world that had never seen leadership and love like that. And whereas they thought he was going to be a king who knocked down the forces of evil from the Romans, Jesus' actual attack was against the forces of evil that abide in the hearts of people. And so he offers this metaphor. But let's not get stuck on the fact that it's a metaphor. Behind it was a reality that was vast and beautiful of a God who is at work to cleanse the hearts of people. So in the second half of our passage today, Jesus explains why he did what he did. And so we see in verse 12, when he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? I imagine nobody had an answer. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The cleansing of their feet might have been a metaphor, but the reality it represents absolutely isn't. If you are going to join Team Jesus, you have to have been cleansed by his love, but it also means bringing that cleansing to others. Peter's argument with Jesus was, this is beneath you, but now Peter is learning, this isn't beneath me either. I'm supposed to do this exact thing. And from Jesus' point of view, this is the very purpose for which he came. This is the fullest expression of divine love. This is the joyful delight of God's heart to take people who are messy and broken and filthy and to set them free. I love this because Jesus turns all leadership expectations on their head. In verse 13, he says, you you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Sure, I'm your teacher and Lord. It's exactly what you expect, but this is what a teacher and a Lord actually does. We have such an upside-down vision of the world that God has made. Those who teach should teach like this. Those who rule 
This is the posture. If you were going to be on Team Jesus, then you were not only going to experience this expression of divine love, having your heart cleansed, but you were going to express it to others as well. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. It's not beneath Jesus, because this is the heart of God. And now it shouldn't and cannot be beneath Peter and the rest of the disciples. And now it cannot be beneath us. Why? Because there are people there who are washing the feet of people. And God loves people. He knit them in the mother's womb. He's held, held them together by the very word of his power. He knows their story. He knows how they reflect his majesty and grace. You're not washing the feet of a temporary thing. It's not like a tree that gets knocked down and it's gone. This is an eternal soul. It's a person. And God loves people. So that's our passage and at this point, we should ask ourselves, what are the implications of such a calling? Because, yes, Jesus gave us a metaphor, but it is reflective of a divine reality. When I come across someone else, my natural response to them must now be to bring them into Christ's cleansing love. My, every interaction with someone else must now be a reflection in some way of a love that cleanses hearts. My actions toward the other should in every way be a reflection of the act that I received in the cleansing of hearts. Jesus is not telling you to walk around with a basin and have foot washing ceremonies all the time. What he is telling us is that the people around us should receive that level of love and compassion through our hearts and actions toward them. When I encounter someone else, the other, this is how I should interact with them. I should interact with them with a love that cleanses them from their sins. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? Well, first, it's this. Jesus paved the way for us to follow. Do you want to know what God's will is? Follow him in this path. Follow him in what he did. Washing feet was not a side hustle. And we, this is where we have to unlearn the natural tendency. We have this natural tendency to say, well, Jesus did this over here. So they can get back to doing what he's over. I mean, obviously now he's on the throne of heaven and now he's ruling and reigning and he comes back with a sword. Like, surely this is just something he did as an illustration but wasn't the, the big picture. No, this is who he is. This is the heartbeat of God. This was this act of serving and loving gently and lowly. This is the full expression. That is the God glorified. This is his heartbeat. Had Jesus not become this for us, we would have never been able to be cleansed in the first place. And he was under no presuppositions and no misconceptions about what it meant to set us free from our sin. In John uh, 14, 12, 46, it says this, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 
What does this tell you? He knows that we're in darkness. He knows that the only hope for us is to be our light. He knows this about it. He understands that. And as the light of the world, he steps in to shine forth freedom in our souls. John 3.16, which if you've been to Sunday school, you surely know this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What is this saying? This is saying that God so understood the work that he would be doing on our behalf. We were all perishing. We were all running full, full tilt towards destruction. And God comes in and intervenes with that so that we might, instead of receiving eternal death, receive eternal life. He understands what he's doing. He understands the need that we bring. But he also made himself the example and gave us that cleansing. So anytime you come across someone who acts like they are above repentance and above forgiveness of God, they're not part of Team Jesus. Jesus gave us this cleansing. He paved the way for us as a servant, a servant who understood that the way to reach and save was by taking upon yourself the suffering and the brokenness of others. Jesus did this, and he calls us to do it too. He doesn't call us to do something that he's not willing himself to do. I hate it when you come across a boss like that who tell you to do something that they're too entitled to do themselves. Not that they have to do it, but the entitlement there is just, oh, it's awful. Jesus gave us this example to show us the way forward is the path of service. The way to be with people is through serving them. To give them what? Well, Jesus paved the way through his cleansing. Jesus said to Peter, if you reject my cleansing, you reject me. There is no participation in Jesus' life outside of his cleansing. You can talk all day long about religion all you want to. I don't know why you would. It sounds really boring. The whole purpose of this whole thing is so that hearts might be made right with God and know how to follow them. And our responsibility now as his followers is to do the same thing. But let's be clear. You're not the one actually cleansing people. You don't have the power to, that, to do that. You are not the Holy Spirit of God. You are, a, a, you are a conduit by which God uses these hands to minister to somebody. Think of the glory of that. These are just hands, human, fleshly hands. And all of a sudden, God uses the matter that we bring to the table to make an eternal difference in someone's life by his Holy Spirit's power. It's not you doing it. It's God doing it through you. Because this is what Jesus is for us. In Hebrews 10, we read this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is difficult for us to understand. Expansion of kingdoms has always, throughout all generations, come through might and will power. That the people with the biggest army take down the people with the smaller ones. That is not how the kingdom of God expands. The kingdom of God expands through service to the other. That 
I reach in and God, through this, this person, loves somebody else. So they receive, through the ministry God has given me and the ministry God has given you, cleansing that can set their souls free. We're not used to leadership like this. We're not used to expansion and growth, growth like this. We see expansion as something that must be taken by force sometimes. We've seen history of kingdoms rising against kingdoms and taking kingdoms from other kingdoms. But when the Son of God grows his kingdom, it's through gentle love that washes people and makes them free. The cleansing of the heart is the means. And we do that by washing people's feet. And finally, we have this. Jesus paved the way for giving us an example to follow. He asks us to do what he's done. And he doesn't obscure it either. He says in verse 13, or 15 of chapter 13, I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And then later in the chapter, it says this, little children, yet a little while, while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The way that people know that you are a child of God is by this, living this out. What is the greatest defense of the faith? Now, Jeremy has like a billion books in his office, and I have like a billion books in my basement. Still haven't unpacked them somehow. But we have books that are all about defending the faith. They give you critical evidence from history and science and math and all the things to show you that the Christianity is true and real. But I don't know, I've been in ministry a long time and I have never won someone over to Christ by out-debating them. Not even once. And I, okay, first off, I hate debate, so maybe I'm just the wrong guy for it. But it is fascinating to me that you can sit back and amass all the knowledge about science and history and manuscript evidence for the Bible and proof that Moses was a real person, like all that stuff, and still win and still not have brought someone to faith. What is the greatest apologetic? What is the greatest defense of the faith? Obedience to Jesus. This, when people actually encounter a Christian who does this, washing someone else's feet, loving like Christ's love, that is the greatest defense of the faith. It's the only defense of the faith. Jesus straight up said, this is the way they'll know you, are mine. Because when you come into the presence of someone who actually loves like Jesus loves, you step into the divine. Have you ever been in the presence of someone who was so committed to God's love that you suddenly in their presence felt, I don't know, like you had walked into something other, something different, something that reoriented the world to itself? It's not that these people are special. It's not that they are somehow Christians 2.0. They've gone to that next level of faith. It's that they obey. And by obedience, they become a conduit by which the life of Christ passes through them and heals others. This is the means by which our Christian life is to be known. 
And it needs to be understood that this is not something that we can ignore. In Matthew 7, 24 through 27, Jesus says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Everyone here knows what it's like to be beaten up by Michigan weather. I've been here a year, and I can tell you that Michigan has a lot of things. They don't have good bagels, despite anything Tim Hortons might tell you. What you do have, though, is excellent seasons. We'll call them that. And I will say that being a Southerner who just moved from New Jersey to here, I, I actually like the big dumps of snow. Cool, very awesome. I love snow blowing. It makes me feel like I am in like, active defiance against the gods of nature. But what is fascinating to me is the psychological torment that the sky plays on me throughout the day. It'll be outside, and we'll be in our down jacket, and I am perpetually cold, and all of a sudden you'll just look up and you'll see a little, little flurry where the skies remind you, I could torture you right now. Just give me a chance and I'll dump all the snow on you. I hate that. I, like... <laughs> kills me. But no one, this is why I need a home. I don't, I don't want to live outside in such conditions. I hate standing outside in such conditions. Some people are outdoors people. I, I don't understand it. But I need a home to be in, to protect me. And this is the metaphor Jesus uses about how his call of obedience should exist in our life. It's like going inside of a home. A well-built home can sustain itself through a harsh storm. Nobody here is surprised when the rain falls because all of us know that the rain will fall and it will fall what it wants to. And I don't know why, but brides throughout the country somehow forget this and plan outdoor weddings and are somehow surprised that a tornado on my wedding day? How could you, God? Like, it's only, only brides, forget this, but everyone else in the world knows that this is something that happens all the time. When it wants to, I have no control over it. And so Jesus talks about his own call to us like a house. A well-built house provides shelter and shade. A poorly built house doesn't. It breaks, it falls, and it is dangerous for the people inside. What is a well-built house? Obedience. And when we obey the Lord, we become a shelter for our family and a shelter for those around us. And here's what we have to stop and ask. What is Jesus asking of us? We shouldn't think of this as like, all right, brothers and sisters, think of someone who's annoying to you and find a way to love them this week. That is not the application point here. The actual application is this. Everyone we meet, Everyone we know. Everyone with whom God places us in proximity. This is the normal Christian life. This is the normal ethic that we should be living in. 
This is a command for humility that serves not one person who's particularly troublesome, but every person. This is how we should treat a newborn baby, a crying newborn baby, or an old person, or a crying old person, and everyone in between. It doesn't matter that they're nice to you or annoying to you. It doesn't, Jesus gives us no exceptions to this. Oh, uh, wash the feet of people who vote the way you vote. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, make sure that their sexual identity is to your liking. This is a person, an eternal soul made in the image of God. Not even sin with all of its wrecking power could fully take away God's image in this person. And Jesus has called us to serve the people around us in this way. This is not something that we can throw around. This is the normal Christian life. Jesus, talking about leadership, says in Matthew 20, Jesus called them and said, You know that the lead rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever be first among you must be your servant. Who be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. How are you going to respond to the call of Christ today? If we look at these commands, a very clear command to see God's cleansing love and to do God's cleansing love, and we don't see it in our hearts, we should repent. This is not something that we can play around with. This is the normal Christian expression. If you want to know what a Christian like, should look like, this is what a Christian should look like. It doesn't say anything in there about having a regular Bible study or going to church all, all the time or making sure blah, 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 blah. We add so many other extraneous things, some of them very good. And we sometimes obscure the one thing that we're supposed to be known by, a life that is known by love. So instead of asking, well, who's the one annoying person that needs a little shot of love? Ask instead, how can I, in the life that God has given me, love everyone around me like Christ's love? And if you see immediately the limitations of yourself, you're supposed to, because God is the one who loves through you. You're not the one who saves. You're not the one who makes someone clean. You're just like a pipe that builds water. Like Water goes in, water goes out. The holy God of the universe works through you so that through your ministry, through your love, others might be healed, satisfied, and finally experience a love that covers a multitude of sins. One place where I know that we have this need is uh, in our church. Maybe you're looking for a place to further serve I can tell you that our kids' ministry and student ministry absolutely need people who love like this. I grew up in church. I don't remember 99% of the stuff I was ever told. But I do remember the people worth following, the people whose compassion looked like Jesus. We need people in children's ministry and student ministry who look like this, who love like that, because that teaches more to students and to children about what God is like than being able to properly read a lesson. They will learn more from you if you behave like this than any words you might share. 
So that might be one place to do it. But at the very least, we should be asking, how can I love the person in front of me like Jesus loved? You're going to immediately run into the end of yourself. I think about Zinzendorf, and while on paper that's just massive and awesome that they went to the most underreached peoples of the world. They specifically sought out those people. But if you then read further, it was filled with great hardship and extreme suffering at times. It wasn't just like, oh, we found them. They're in a hard spot. All is good. For them to enculturate and to show God's love came through sometimes struggle, but other times massive amounts of God working in ways that no one else could describe. And if it could happen through Zinzendorf, it can happen here too. What if this was a place where every person walked in, met an entire congregation, committed to loving the people around them like Christ loves them? What would that look like? Imagine the safety. But it doesn't have to just be here. What does it look like for you to go wherever God sends you? And when people meet you, they meet someone who has the servant love of God. People will know they have walked into something completely other. Because divine love cannot be faked in this world. Divine love heals hearts. And divine love is safe. This is the high calling of the Christian. And it should be the one thing that we're most known for. To wash the feet of others. And to bring, through our service, others into cleansing power of the Lord's love. So today, I encourage you, if you see places in your life where this doesn't describe you, repent and let the Lord set your heart aright. But if you want to know what it means to do the will of God, this is what it means. This is the number one ethic that Christians should be following. It is the way that God is seen in our world. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself to us today.